Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode features director Adam McKay discussing his new comedy drama, The Big Short. Based on the 2010 book by Michael Lewis, the film tells the story of how a group of Wall Street outsiders correctly predicted the financial crisis of 2008. Mr. McKay has an extensive background as both a comedy director and writer. His work includes feature films Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, and Step Brothers. He is known for his frequent collaborations with actor Will Ferrell, with whom he co-founded the comedy website Funny or Die in 2007. Moderating the discussion is director and screenwriter Paul Thomas Anderson, who was nominated for a 2008 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures for his film There Will Be Blood. Mr. Anderson's other feature film credits include Inherent Vice, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love. We invite you to listen in on highlights from their conversation, recorded in November at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, as Mr. McKay discusses the challenge of making the world of credit default swaps and derivatives accessible and entertaining to audiences. Enjoy. I want him to announce me everywhere, every time. Okay. That was an old school announcement. <laughs> now Thank that you, sir. You, yeah. Um, now that you have sufficiently horrified everybody on a Sunday. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but this is an impossible question to ask, but um, how did you make such a horrifying, sad, but entertaining movie? <laughs> um, because it, I, I, I'm not surprised that you did, because your movies are always hilarious and they're always entertaining, but... Um, this is also really, really tragic. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think with Wall Street, especially, you usually see this mass hysteria that leads up to bubbles. And the mass hysteria is really fun. Uh, everyone is making money. Everyone's doing really well. Um, so there's an energy to it before the bubble pops. Uh, you know, if you remember when the tech bubble was going on, like, oh, my God, I bought Pets.com. I now made $100,000, and and it's a grand old time. So I always thought of the beginning of the movie as sort of like that movie 21 about card counters, where there was like an intrigue to it that these really smart guys saw what was going on against a system that thought they were losers. Mm -hmm. And that's a dynamic that's just fun and interesting no matter what. Uh, and then, of course, once the collapse hits, it devastates everything. Right. All their little of mice and men plans all just get blown away. Uh, it's all of us. It affects the entire world. So it had to end tragic. Even if you soft sell it, it has to be incredibly tragic by the end. Right. But that's what I loved about the book. The book had all those different energies and nuances and kind of subgenres going on at the same time. And I was really excited to get into that. Does the book? I haven't read the book, but does it vaguely resemble the trajectory of the screenplay, at least in terms of cr chronologically sort of taking you through it? Not at all. No, okay. the, the original book is about a shark attack. And <laughs> it's... <laughs> no, it, it does. Uh, 
the books, <laughs> that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? <laughs> the book is uh, structured a lot like what we have. I mean, it does sort of follow, like, obviously, Christian Bale's character, Michael Burry, is the guy who saw it before anyone. Right. We always refer to him as the Oracle. Mm -hmm. He was, like, alone in that office the whole time. And then it sort of sprouted out from, from there. And you saw uh, Carell's character, kind of like almost like Jason and the Argonauts, him and his team. <laughs> mm -hmm. They were the ones who were going out and actually doing it. And then you have the young guys, kind of the, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern mm -hmm. kind of guys. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that that's a lot how Lewis structured it. He obviously went deeper into the financial world. He talked about the presidents of a lot of the banks. Right. There were little sub-stories. But the I think the basic spine of it is very similar. The part, um, I mean, obviously you've done an amazing job of actually making it followable, or at least halfway followable. Um, and even if all the details and some of these words and some of this stuff goes over your head, the compassion and the sort of emotions of the character help tell you where you're at, you know? So, but the moment besides, uh, is it Jingo? Yeah. Jenga? Jenga. Jenga. This is the second time you've had Jenga in a movie. Um, I'd love that you <laughs> noticed that. Absolutely. You're the only person on planet Earth that noticed that. Well, you have recurring themes of Jenga, drum sets. Um, Sweet Child of Mine is another recurring I, song. That only comes PTA back would notice those things. That's amazing. <laughs> I told someone the other day, I go, I wonder if anyone will notice that we had Jenga in Talladega Nights, and you're the first person to say it. Yeah. Um, it was very helpful as a device, but when I really was able to connect to what the fuck everybody was talking about was when they go to that housing development down in Florida. Yeah. And it kind of becomes flesh and blood and very real. Um, just talk about that sequence. Talk about, I mean, that's, that. Uh, did you set dress that? Or that looked like you just walked into something that I've driven by and seen before. Like, you see them everywhere. If you go it, down to Florida or even out here in California. It, it, was, it was outside New Orleans, which is still the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So you had the palm trees. And it was exactly what you think. It was a right. giant housing development that they had built because everyone was going to want them. And then it collapsed and there was no one there. So we went around these neighborhoods and there were like three people right. out of 15 that were in houses. And we did set deck the one where the TV was taken. Sure. We had the bills and stuff. We went in there. But it was really close to what we had. I mean, one of my favorite little just background moments is those are those bags blowing against the fence mm -hmm. in the backyard. And they're like, it's like Chernobyl. It was, it was haunting to be there just to feel these hopes and dreams. And they all had names like, you know, heavenly glade and, you know, yeah. uh, and just nothing, just right. silence. And then the odd thing was like at the end of one street, there was this giant mansion and it was like a former player from like the New Orleans basketball team was there. And he was just there and he was having a grand old time. And then the rest of the place was just abandoned. I'm having a hard time wondering if the alligator in the pool is fact or fiction. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I really can't tell you? <laughs> yes, tell me. Tell all me. Right, all right, all um, right. No, that's actually, all right, here's the craziest thing. When that collapse happened, the CDC saw an uptick in West Nile virus, a massive uptick. And they couldn't figure out what it was. They were like, what's going on? And it turned out it was from all the thousands and thousands and millions of abandoned pools. Mosquitoes were nesting. And there was this huge outbreak of West Nile. Um, so it's true that people had gators going into their pools. There's stories of bobcats moving into abandoned houses uh, in Nevada. Like, it, it's very true. I mean, not that exact incident, but it's a common story you hear. Um, that's fine. Um, makes perfect sense. <laughs> makes perfect sense somehow. Um, 
Even the mosquitoes are affected. I mean, anyway. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the CDC noticed it. Yeah. Um, um, people that have worked with you um, say that you are, and you've worked with some amazing improvisers, but they say that you're the best improviser, that at 8.30 in the morning when everybody is still tired and not awake yet, you got 10 jokes in your pocket, each one better than the next. And you've worked with some great ones. So... In a film like this, when you have more more script per square inch to deal with that can't be improvised, all this kind of technical information, how are you able to factor in the way you've previously worked of feeding improvisational lines? Were you able to do that as much between the cracks, or how, how does that work for you, and how does that transition go? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Uh, it totally you? makes sense. I think with comedy, you're on this you know vigilant hunt for the laugh. And all day long on the set of a comedy, your mind is like a machine gun. It's always just processing everything. And, and you're trying to get story alts as well. Uh, but in the case of this movie, it was more of a case by case. So there'd be a scene that wasn't quite working. And what was great was I could say, let's mess with it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't intimidating. I would just say, there's something wrong here. That, you know, I wrote it. I think it's a little bit clunky what I wrote. Let's mess with it a little bit. And then whenever it was a group scene, also I encouraged them to over-talk, yeah. uh, to throw stuff in. Uh, there's one scene you see in the movie where Rafe Spall talks about his swollen epididymis, um, and then Steve walks in, and that came out of like a series of seven takes where I said, you guys are going to talk for a minute before Steve walks in, and I just let them improvise. Right. And Rafe Spall improvised swollen epididymis and <laughs> ended up in the movie. Because uh, those real guys, when you meet them, they're always busting each other's balls. There's right. like a funny, fun environment they have, and I wanted to get that in there. So it becomes more of a flavor and sometimes a curative when right. a scene is a little bit broken, whereas with comedy, it's constant. Uh, you were actually mentioning uh, the 8.30 in the morning when no one wants to improvise. One of the funniest things on Step Brothers was one day at 8.30 in the morning, John C. Riley and Farrell came up to me and just said, we're tired. And I was like, okay. And they're like, can we not improvise today? Can we just do the as written? I was like, guys, don't worry about it. Like, I'll throw you the lines. You don't have to do anything. And Riley just looked at Pharaoh. He's like, he's going to make us improvise. <laughs> That's who I heard it from, John Riley. Yeah. Maybe the movie answered this, but where do all these guys get such self satisfaction from? I mean, do they end? Do, is there like in an addiction? Like, I, I guess, I, like, I look at the Brad Pitt character who clearly got out, but clearly has still some pull to be involved in it. He's such an, a, a mysterious character. Um, these, it's, like an, it's an addiction for these guys, isn't it? I mean, they all seem to sort of be operating at this in, intense level after, after what exactly? Just the thrill of it? Or is it really the dough? Or I think it's different for each guy. Uh, you know, the case of Mark Baum, who's Steve Carell's character, the real guy is a comic book nerd. And he reads Spider-Man all the time. And I actually thought that was so cartoonish, I didn't put it in the movie. I was mm -hmm. like, that just seems like bad writing. Um, and he really kind of views himself as a crusader. And his whole thing was that he would find companies that were committing fraud, and he would short them, and he would go after them. And he really did view himself as like a superhero of the Wall Street world. Right. 
in the case of Michael Burry, he had a different relationship with it. He loved the certainty of math. He loved discovering reality, the comforting, all-powerful reality that we all delude ourselves from. So he had this obsessive ability to just read and read, and he would read obscure documents and numbers, and he was always looking for the thing that everyone else was missing that told the real story. Mm -hmm. So for him, it's very strange, but the two ways he would relax is he would like read these crazy Bond prospectuses, and he would listen to thrash metal. And, uh, and that's how he relaxed. And I think he needed that comfort in numbers and math and certainty. In the case of the young guys, I think they're, you know, Jamie and Charlie, they're a little bit more like us. I think they're guys who had this great idea that everyone undervalues bad things happening, which is a very smart take on things. Yeah. And it was working. And then they wanted to just keep going and see how far they could go. So they were a little bit more like your average person. Like, right. we're going to get rich. We're going to do this. And when you see them to this day, when you meet the real guys, they have like a thousand yard stare. I mean, they definitely discovered there's no Santa Claus. When they found out the market was completely rigged, it shattered them. I mean, they were angry and hurt. So each guy kind of had his own drive, but I think overall they all believed in the market. They all believe that the market corrects. Well, there's that great moment when he says, you guys, you guys, you know, you act like you're, um, I can't remember the line, you know. Yeah, you act like you're cynical guys. But you all still have a little bit of faith, yeah. I mean, I think when I said the self-satisfaction refers to those guys who, when they say they're, they're not, uh, they're not get, hanging themselves, they're bragging, you know, those yeah. two fellas in the bar. Um, well, they were just clueless. I mean, they were right. utterly clueless, yeah. Those um, are the guys that get rich and don't know why they got rich, yet go around acting like, of course I'm rich. You know, but talk about the Brad Pitt character a little bit, the mystery behind him. I mean, without, I mean, um, it's a great performance by Brad, too. He really just seems to fit right in. He's amazing. Um, did you talk about him? No, you didn't. Tell me a little bit more about him. So Brad's character is a real guy. Uh, we changed his last name, but uh, Ben Rickert. And... Uh, he really is a guy. I had an hour conversation with him that scared the crap out of me uh, for an hour. And he doesn't yell. He doesn't rant. He just very logically and mathematically told me why the, why the world's about to end in the next hundred years. And he was citing temperature studies. <laughs> he was citing like acidity levels in the ocean. He was citing like CO2 emissions and he just broke it down. And then he studies rates of change too. And he was telling me how the models that we're using on rates of change for this impending environmental disaster are completely wrong. And I was like, man, I got to stop having this conversation with you. This is um, so the real guy's very different than Brad. He's a little younger. Mm -hmm. uh, He's got tattoos, yet his face looks very kind of bureaucratic and bland. Um, But he's absolutely brilliant. Him and Burry are the two smartest guys in this story. Um, So I decided with Brad that he wasn't really a match for the real guy. And I kind of liked the structure of the old gunfighter picking up his guns to come back into the mix. And uh, when is that ever not cool? Right. Yeah. 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 Even if you see like a, you know, a fry cook go, you know what? I'm going to flip one more burger. (laughs) You're like, that's awesome. Um, So we sort of put him in that construct and then Brad came up with a lot of details about his character, somewhat based on the real guy and then ideas that he came up with. He did the greatest thing, which is he told wardrobe, he said, get every tie you give me, give me a tag on it. Mm-hmm. And then you see that one little moment where he plucks his tag off and I was like, Oh, that's so smart. It was yeah. so cool. Um, 
So he kind of created his character a little more out of whole cloth, and so did Ryan as well. Ryan was like inspired by the real guy, but because Ryan had to be the narrator and a character, mm -hmm. we decided he shouldn't do the real guy. He should just follow his timeline. It's a terrific performance by him. It really helps pull you through the movie. Um, well, they all do. They all do in their separate ways. Um, this must have been a really hard thing to read, or at least the script. It, I, I could imagine it just looking like a mound of words and confusing stuff. Was it hard to sort of convince somebody to make this movie? Um, I'm, I'm only wondering, was it as hard as the original draft of Anchorman that Will and I gave you? <laughs> <laughs> um, True story, by the way. PTA was the original producer on the first Anchorman. And Will and I wrote the craziest freaking script. It had like a musical number with sharks. It was just unhinged. And poor Paul was just like so supportive and such an artist. And he just read it and he's like, I don't, I don't know what this is. <laughs> so Will and I always bragged that we single-handedly destroyed PTA's <laughs> producing career. Um, <laughs> Or, or the other way is that I'm the asshole without my name on Anchorman. How great would that have been? Um, I blew that. Well, that's all right. Um, uh, you were asking about the script. How much money would I have made from Anchorman? I mean, really? <laughs> it's funny. 13.8 Yeah, yeah. That's simple. That's all right. Um, no, you were asking about the script. Was it uh, The script, yeah. Yes. You know, um... I mean, I can imagine it being that thick because there's so much dialogue, even though the movie moves fast and everything else. Um, you, I, I imagine that somebody, they, they have to put faith in you, a studio, and their actors to go, this is going to be a tough one. And it, uh, it says a lot about trusting you, I would think, because it can't be presented as easy material. It's not immediately clear that this could, could have worked. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, the first draft I wrote, which I always call the vomit draft, the draft, and I think you work like this too. I've, I've mm -hmm. read about you in some interview where you said you just write down everything you want to see in the movie. Mm -hmm. and, I, and Will and I do the same thing, and I did it on this as well. So we write this big, I wrote this big vomit draft of this where I just tried everything. And it was, it started with an old banking commercial from the 80s saying like, you know, trust, reliability. And then it was like Morgan Freeman was in the commercial and he stepped out and went, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And he became our narrator for the movie. And it was just too removed. I, I was like, ah, it's not quite right. So once I d decided that it was Ryan Gosling, I thought that makes a little more sense. He's kind of the circulatory system of the story. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like Charon taking us across the river Styx, this kind of lizard smooth guy. And, uh, and that integrated it more. So that was the big change I made. And then I kept the pop explainers right and they seem to be working well so by the time i handed it in they actually liked it they were excited by it right but they still weren't saying it's greenlit i think i i asked them can i send it to my dream cast and i told them my dream cast like christian bale ryan gosling steve carell and pitt was a producer at that point and they were like yeah knock yourself out <laughs> and then everyone said yes great and that was what really slammed it into gear as you know it's like yeah. when you get those types of actors it becomes a whole different conversation for sure yeah. well it's amazing it's amazing writing what you've done but now let's talk about the directing part and i suppose my directing question is actually more to talk about um post-production and talk about hank uh Kerwin? corwin 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 who we talked briefly about out front just because um 
there's so much information. There's so much stuff going on, and it he seems to. Ha I don't know what you first put this together, how long it was, or anything, but. When you, you, you feel as an audience member that all the information is already there, and even when somebody isn't done talking, you're moving on to the next thing. And it's yeah. so, it feels so good. And, and, um, these montages, which are usually kind of reserved for like, you know, the 30s or 40s to establish time and place, was so great you have them here, but it's recent history. You know, it's 2004 or 5, some yeah, of these yeah. things. You're seeing Sasha Baron Cohen with these, these things, these, you know, that, that are like fresh in our memory. When usually those kinds of sequences involve Letting you know about another time where you, yeah, you weren't alive, yeah, or, yeah, or something. Yeah. Um, but all of it, all of the editing. Um, how was it working with him? I guess is my question. I mean, he's, he's sort of a world class editor. And yeah, I, I think Hank Corwin is about as good as you get. I mean, he's really incredible. He did uh, Tree of Life. He did Natural Born Killers. I don't think he's credited on FDR, but he did a lot of it. He's also that guy you'll never see his credit, but he'll be the guy that like Michael Mann or Ridley Scott will call him and say, hey, come in and help me. I mean, he's a killer. And he's just got a range of skill mixed with pure inspiration that I've never seen before. So we shot with Barry Aykroyd, who's right. our DP, who's also an artiste, just an amazing DP. And, you know, that's a very specific style. And I wanted to blend that verite style with sometimes more formalistic elements. Mm -hmm. And the question we had coming into it was, can you do that? Can you take, uh, you know, a, a Greengrass film and mix it a little bit with like a Scorsese film? Can you do both those things? The movies we looked at that seemed to do it were 24-hour party people, mm -hmm. which I love. Yeah, and, great uh, and Children of Men does it too, where mm -hmm. you see handheldy and then more formalistic shot framing. So I brought Hank in and I said, just watch all the President's Men and watch 24-hour party people and let's go. And he had never seen 24-hour party people and he just called me afterwards. He was like, hey, yeah. let's go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was really incredible. He had a bunch of breakthrough ideas on this movie. I mean, it was his idea to put the photos and the stock footage throughout the movie that mm -hmm. showed the outside world. Mm -hmm. I had some of that in the script, but he like tripled the amount. He right. was like, it can't feel like you're always in an office. It can't feel like that. And I was a little skeptical at first. And then as we kept massaging it, it started to fit into the rhythm of the movie. Um, it's definitely an element that's probably one of the more, you know, people will argue against it or for it, but I ended up really loving it. No, I, I think it works movie. really, 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 really well. Yeah, I mean, the worst that could have happened is, is just people talking in rooms for too long, and you, yes. you, you do have so much of that. It's always compelling because of the performances. You do know my next film is called People Talking in Rooms for Too Long, right? <laughs> it's good. It, it's not as boring as it sounds. <laughs> um... I'm not going to ask you what you're doing next, but what are you doing next? <laughs> no, that's a worse question than anybody asks a director after they just like finish a year of their life on a movie. Like, so what are you up to next? It's kind of the indication is like that was good, but what, really, what are you up to next? Like, well, f off. I mean, that was good enough, wasn't it? <laughs> we, well, you and I were talking about. I'm actually talking with uh, Farrell and uh, John C. Riley about doing a comedy about two guys that go down to defend America's borders against the immigrants. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. We actually have Jesse Armstrong, who wrote In the Loop, is delivering a draft, I think, next week. Uh, what I'm excited about, though, with this movie, doing the handheld verite style, 
I was amazed you could still get pretty good laughs. You know, the, you know, the theory in comedy is always that you have to frame very traditionally so the performance or the logic is what gets the laugh. But I don't know. I'm actually thinking about with this next movie going more handheld than I've ever gone. But where do you think that idea comes from? Is that just something, something that's more laid bare is that comedies traditionally have, what, from the 30s, this is the shot, this is the shot, straightforward, and that kind of... That's just sort of stuck. I mean, I I think so. I think people are scared to have the visual style be too much front and center, including myself to some degree. I mean, we did uh, Step Brothers handheld, and there's some nice handheld work in there. And certainly with the race sequences in Talladega Nights, we cut loose and did them stylized. But yeah, I think there's always this belief that you need traditional framing. The logic has to be very familiar, so that the comedy can break that routine. Um, but I was surprised with this movie. There were things that we weren't even really going for laughs on that were getting big laughs. So I don't know. Maybe I won't go as far as kind of total Ackroyd, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Captain Phillips. But I, the idea of going a little more handheld is kind of exciting to me. But how did you work on finishing this movie? Did you show it to friends and family? Did you test it the traditional? Because I know you when you like to test your films. Did you do that the same amount? on this film, how, how, just take me through that process a little bit. So yeah, we had a pretty tight post process, so I definitely screened a lot. We were screening once a week, and mostly I would recruit on the uh, Paramount lot at the Sherry Lansing Theater and just get 280 people in. You can feel it with a crowd like that. And then occasionally we'd go to you know some of the bigger places like The Block. We really wanted to take it like to you know Orange mm -hmm. to see what kind of a little bit more mainstream America would think of it. And it was amazing. It had the exact same response. In some ways, they were even more passionate about it because they had you know, family members that had lost houses and jobs. So yeah. they were much more vocal. Uh, but I do like to test. I mean, it, I, I think it always depends on the movie. This movie is built to be a conversation with the audience. Yeah. So I need to see that conversation. If what it's were working. the strongest things that you learned within that, um, within your testing? Was it things that really that you hadn't seen that you did see? Or was it just confirming things that you were feeling? That's a great question. I'm trying to remember exactly what we learned. I mean, a lot of it is timing and energy. Mm -hmm. I knew with the esoterica, the financial esoterica that we had, that we had to keep the energy rolling. Mm -hmm. So I would keep finding dead spots where uh, there was no new information. There was no character reveal. There was no, there was nothing going on. Why do we have that there? Um, that's a big one. And then just in the phrasing of the information, we kept messing with it. Uh -huh. uh, we wanted to make it clearer. Um, you know, we obviously had Gosling doing a voiceover, so I was able to tweak that a lot. Okay. Um, you're just constantly shaping. That's all it is. I mean, you know, it's yeah, like you're yeah. just seeing it. Each movie's designed to do something different. I mean, there are certain movies, if I made Diving Bell and the Butterfly, I'm not sure I would test it, you know? Yeah. I don't think you need to. But with this movie, it is an, you know, it's an, a movie that's engaging the audience. Um, yeah, like, does Jim Jarmusch test his films? <laughs> I don't think so. So Jim, uh, top box 41, uh, <laughs> bottom box 28. Not bad. Um, my favorite testing story is that uh, somebody, they tested, even that film, Remember the Titans, uh, with Denzel Washington, they had a test screening in Pasadena that was 98% the top two boxes, and whoever was the head of the studio at the time sort of stood in the lobby afterwards looking at the score, and he said, well, looks like we got some work to do. <laughs> Did you ever hear the miracle on 34th Street one? No. I was actually telling this story at a dinner recently, and halfway through the story, a guy said, I worked on that movie. Uh, and you'll see why that's not cool. They, they tested Miracle on 34th Street, a remake, like 
10, 15 years ago and the movie got a hundred <laughs> and the studio was like, holy crap. Like we thought this was a small little 800 screen release. So they just went, that's it. We're all in and like 4,000, you know, whatever, 3,200 screens, triple the marketing budget. And the movie just tanked, like bombed horribly. And it's like, it boiled down to no one's going to say Santa Claus sucks. That's, what, <laughs> that's all it was. Right. It's like doing a movie called Jesus and being like, <laughs> the scores are a little low. Um, we have one minute. Um, what are the chances you could make a movie a year like Woody Allen? Because that would be my dream to get a movie a year from you. Would you do a movie a year? Uh, I, if I could, but I can't. I don't no think way. I can write as well as you can, as fast uh, as you. As, you know, I don't think I'm. I wouldn't that be the dream? I want to be able to do that. A movie a year? Come on, what are the chances? I could do a movie every year and a half, not a movie a year. I'll though. take that. I'll take I need that. two months off, three months off, when we're done. I think when those guys do it, like Spike Lee was in that groove for a while too. Like that just means you're like shooting while you're writing, and then let's go. I right. don't know if that quite works. Right. I would definitely love to see a movie a year from you, though, way more than from me. Like, <laughs> please do that. Um, start churning them out. Like, get your name out there as a brand, and just start pumping them out. <laughs> what would have to happen? How? What would have to go down for you to direct a Transformers movie? <laughs> would we have to like take a loved one hostage? Would it have to be a pit viper bites you? You don't get the antidote until you... <laughs> I would do anything to see him direct a Transformers movie. <laughs> he directed an Adam Sandler movie, and it's like one of my all-time favorite movies, basically. Man, if I just Please. had that 13 million from Anchorman royalties... <laughs> If I got bit by a snake and I needed the antidote, I would probably... You do Transformers? I would, I would do it. God, what would you do? Or I would lose the leg. Is that the antidote? <laughs> <laughs> I'll lose the leg. <laughs> well, it's an amazing film, and I'm greedy. I can't wait to see your next film. Thank oh, you, thank Adam. you, sir. You're I feel the, the same way about you. Adam McKay, everybody. Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to this talk. You can watch all of our recent filmmaker Q&As at dga.org slash events, as well as highlights from Mr. McKay's conversation about The Big Short with moderator Bob Balaban following the New York screening of the film. If you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. We hope you hear from us then. This podcast is brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Music is produced by Dan Wally.